If you have your Bibles, please open to them to uh, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13. If you've been with us for the past several weeks or months, actually, we've been going through the book of Romans verse by verse, and it's a very deep theological uh, book, and um, it, it covers a lot of ground. But ultimately, this morning, we're going to look at the simple truth that it presents. And we looked at this actually last week in our discipleship uh, training that we do here on Sunday nights. This Sunday night will be our last week for a while. Uh, but the truth of the matter is the old uh, answer in Sunday school, if you grew up in church or have been in church for very long and the teacher asks you any sort of question, you can pretty much feel safe to raise your hand and say Jesus as the answer. And, and this morning's message is, is really Jesus is the answer. And that sounds so strange, but last week in discipleship, we talked about this. Think of it like this. If you want, say, you're a business owner and you want a great employee, what do you want of that employee? What if they were like Jesus in every way? They were trustworthy. They were honest. They were full of joy. They were full of goodness. They were gracious. They were forgiving. They didn't gossip. That'd be a great employee, right? Well, what if you were an employee and you were looking for a great boss? And that boss was like Jesus. That would be a great boss. A little intimidating, right? But a great boss. What about a husband? If you're looking for a husband and you're, you're trying to uh, kind of scan the, the individuals and you're thinking, hmm, who do I want for a husband? Well, do you want a husband that's loving, gracious, forgiving, merciful, kind, good? trustworthy husband like Jesus sounds pretty good what about kids if you're raising your kids what do you want them to be what's your greatest aspiration just that they're rich that they become I don't know some sort of occupation what if they were like Jesus again full of grace servant hearted kind loving trustworthy faithful, just. Wow. If you had a kid like that or a grandkid, you'd be like, I'm a good parent. <laughs> I raised up Jesus. <laughs> Mary had to be taking a lot of credit for Jesus, right? But then you're like, yeah, no, he is the son of God. So this morning, we're going to be looking at who is this Jesus and how do you live them out? How do you live him out? Because that's kind of confusing when I first started coming to church at age 13, I was like, yeah, I trust Jesus. I believe in Jesus. He saved me. Great. Now, how do I live? But the idea of trying to live a person out was kind of hard. So we're going to look at that this morning. Romans chapter 15. And for those of you that are not familiar with the Bible, Romans, uh, this book called Romans, we call it a book within a book in the Bible. It was actually a letter. And it was a letter written from more than likely Greece to a church in Rome during the Roman Empire. And if you've placed your hope and joy in this world and, and, and you're kind of frustrated, well, you've got nothing on the church in Rome because they were living under perhaps the most evil empire uh, in existence in the history of the world. The majority of people, we believe, according to historians, were slaves. And, and, and they weren't reforming. They, they didn't get to like vote a new Caesar in. Uh, if, if you're putting your hopes in politicians or change in society or taxes 
all that. No, they didn't get any of that. There was no hope. Not only that, but they could be abused and mistreated. And there was very little justice. As far as wealth, well, there were a few that had a great deal of wealth, but more than likely, uh, you were a slave or you were almost equal to a slave. It was a very depressing situation if you just looked horizontally in this world. But the, the God of creation inspires the Apostle Paul to write to this church about joy and hope and truthfulness. If you're looking for hope today, this is the passage that you want to really read and dig into. Beginning in verse 8, he says this. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome. He says, for I tell you that Christ, Christ is the the title of Jesus. Jesus is his name. Christ means Messiah or Savior. That Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that, or for the purpose of, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So let's unpack this verse at a time. Beginning back in verse 8 and 9. Let's reread this. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Let's stop there. So, point number one, Jesus came to serve. He came to be a servant or to serve and not to be served. Let, just try to wrap your mind around that. God in the flesh came to serve. Who is this God that would come to serve His creation? Yes, He would rule, but His purpose was to serve you and I. That's, that's hard to wrap my mind around. A God who created us, who rules over the entire universe, would send His Son, Jesus, to serve. Why would He do it? Well, in Romans 5.8, we looked at earlier, uh, as we'd gone through the book of Romans, He says this, uh, but God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, He serves because He loves us. In John 15, 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. So notice, Jesus wasn't just simply loving us. He loved us because He was loving the Father. He loved the Father. He has this relationship with God. And now that relationship, this love grows and that extends and moves towards us in love for us. It's this wonderful picture in John 15 10 it says if you Jesus says if you or Paul says if you keep my commandments referring or rather Jesus I was right the first time 
John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Quite frankly, if the idea of serving or Jesus serving you sounds really strange, it all flows out of loving the Father and obeying Him. And as He does that, Jesus commands us to do the same. And so if we are to be great, as Jesus says, the greatest among you in Matthew shall be your servant. It's an example that Jesus set when He came to serve us. We have a God that loves us so much, He desires to serve us. So for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Well, who are the circumcised? A lot of commentators, and maybe even you if you're familiar with the Bible, will immediately say, well, that's referring to the Jews. Wait a second, in Romans 4 that we looked at earlier, just as a refresher, 9 through 12, specifically beginning in verse 11, it says, or let's look at 10, he says, how then was it counted to him, referring to Abraham uh, and his righteousness, was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the circumcision are those who, like Abraham, trusted in God by faith. And so they received this sign. Now, all the Jews would be circumcised, but the assumption would be that they would live by faith. And unfortunately, not all of them did, but Paul clarifies here really quickly, a true Jew was one who had faith. And the circumcision was a sign of faith. So when Jesus comes to serve the circumcised, he's talking about those who are faithfully following God. He didn't forget them. And we're about to look at what that looks like. It says, back in verse 8 of Romans chapter 15, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. To show His truthfulness. Wow. God is a God of history who can be trusted. He tells the truth. This faith that these people had for thousands of years was actually true and it was affirmed in Jesus. Now, I've had discussions this past week. I don't know what your, your week's been this, this last week. Mine's been a little rough. It's been up and down. I've, I've had some challenges. But in speaking with people about faith, what's interesting in our culture is everyone kind of approaches belief or even faith or religion is, and well, you can believe whatever you want to believe, and I'll believe whatever I want to believe, and we'll just see how it all ends up. I don't know what is really, what is really true. No, the Bible makes truth claim after truth claim after truth claim, and it says that God proves or He supports or confirms His truthfulness in history through Jesus. He affirms promises. He affirms prophecy, predictions. This historical unfolding of God at work in humankind 
is recorded in the Bible. It's not a fable. It's, it's not a myth. It is history. It's more than history, but make no mistake, it is history. Not of just mankind, but of God. His redeeming work of mankind in history. From very creation to redemption to a recreation. We'll talk about that in just uh, a little bit in more detail. So, it says this, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So, He shows His truthfulness for two purposes. To confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, number one, and 9a, in order that the Gentiles might, and by the way, you're Gentiles, most of you at least, so am I. Gentiles refers to anyone other than a non-Jew. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Jesus came to serve those of faith so that He would confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So in other words, He's, he's showing His truthfulness in that. And then secondly, in order that you and I might glorify God for His mercy. How does that work? Well, first of all, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So all the promises of the Old Testament, they find their yes in Christ. So yes, really, Jesus is the answer to all the promises. And so as you begin to understand who Jesus is, He's not just Savior, but He's also King, the ruler of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, that He says had come upon the people in His day. He is King. He is uh, Savior. He is Redeemer. He is all these titles that you see he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. But, so he definitely confirms the promises. But then there's this interesting aspect so that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Well, why would they just randomly do that? Well, he gives four reasons. He begins listing them off. 9b, verse 9b says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is quoting 2 Samuel 22.50 as well as Psalm 18.49. What he's quoting here is David's song. David wrote a song in the Old Testament and he was praising God for his salvation. His physical salvation in the midst of a battle in the midst of chaos. David writes this song praising God, his Savior. So if you think about it, you're this Gentile and you're seeing some stuff go on. You're seeing this, this group of people who claims to follow God. They're not doing it most of the time and they're constantly at war. But then they kind of repent and they cry out to this God and God intervenes physically, miraculously in battle, and saves them. So the Gentiles are sitting there looking. 
Who's getting the credit? Is it going to be the people or is it going to be the God of this people? And David writes this song praising the God who saved them. And so as a Gentile, if you hear that, you glorify God for His mercy because Israel was always a nation that was tiny and small. It was, it was one of the smallest nations that existed and there were always bigger, greater nations around and it was God's mercy that saved them. So notice the pattern that we're about to start here. The Gentiles will glorify God. That's you and I. They will glorify God because of God's salvation. The individuals that are saved are proclaiming God's greatness. Those hearing it glorify God because of that. This is the pattern. Has God saved you? Are you praising God for His salvation? And do people hear you praising? Some of you say yes. Some of you say, Scott, it's been a while. It's not just been a rough week for me, but it's been a rough year. It's been a rough decade. And, and quite honestly, looking back to your salvation, it's kind of hard maybe today. There's been so much bitterness and, and difficulty in your life to praise God for your salvation seems maybe for you today really hard in a lot of ways. You might even be here just by the skin of your teeth, so to speak. You're just trying to show up hanging on just for some hope because you, you kind of have this feeling that you kind of need to be in a place where they're talking about Jesus. Well, I want to tell you, the pattern that is laid out here is a simple pattern. It is living for your Savior and praising Him because of who He is and His great love for you. And as you live out that pattern, we're going to see this in the, in the coming verses, it's amazing how simple life really gets. Well, verse 10, he says again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. This is Deuteronomy 32.43. Yet another song, but this song is by Moses. God inspires Moses to write this beautiful song, but once again, it is God's redemption that He's singing about. His redeeming His people out of Egypt, physical salvation, miracles in a physical way. And People are seeing this. And Moses, notice this, is calling on the Gentiles. He says, again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. We're beginning to see in the Old Testament, even back in Moses' day, it wasn't about one specific people. It was about a people who would come to God by faith. Jew or Gentile. This simple life of trusting in God and praising Him for His salvation and the joy that comes with it. He continues on, verse 11, gives a third example. He says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol Him. Just a simple song out of the Psalms. Unknown author, attributed to David many times. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all peoples extol Him. 
Are those words coming across your lips? Praise God. Not as in, oh, praise God. We have a new day today. Like almost religious language. We, we get pretty religious in Baptist circles. But we're, we're great at Brother Harry, Sister Sue, praise God. Uh, we use these terms so often, sometimes we forget that they have meaning. Can you praise God and thank God for His salvation and His goodness in your life or the life of others? He continues on, gives another example. Verse 12, he's moving from songs into this beautiful prophecy. He quotes Isaiah and he says, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, for those of you not familiar with kind of biblical terminology, root basically means a descendant, if, if that helps you. The descendant or the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule, you would expect this to say the Jews in the Old Testament, but he says to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus was going to be a ruler of everyone. Jew and Gentiles. And in Him, we would hope, not of governors, not of presidents, not of economies, not of jobs, not even of marriages or relationships. A lot of times we place our hope in relationships and, and, and other things. And sometimes we lose hope because those things become very difficult. But our hope is in Jesus because He redeemed us. We're in His hands. And, and He closes with this. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So notice this. In history, this God who, who seemed to be the God of the circumcision or the faithful, He redeemed these people and they would sing of His joy. And not only would they sing, but the other people around them, the Gentiles, would sing of that joy as well because they're seeing this God act in history and proof of His redemption and salvation. So they're singing as well and they're praising this real, true God. And, and so He does this and so, may the God of hope fill you with all joy, uh, joy and peace in believing. So this joy and peace is in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's break this down a little bit. First, the God of hope. Do you realize in the New Testament, hope occurs a number of times, but never in the Gospels while, while Jesus is here on earth. This word for hope does not occur in the Gospels. It occurs all throughout the rest of the New Testament, but all, of all the books of the Bible, this word hope occurs the most in the book of Romans. And it's multifaceted. Uh, we see it in the New Testament, for instance, in Acts 28.19-20. Uh, through 20, uh, It says, But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though, I had no charge, or though they had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is because of the hope of Israel I am wearing this chain. So the Apostle Paul is appealing, and he's appealing because of the hope of Israel. In other words, hope, this God of hope, may the God of hope fill you. This hope was a specific person, and it was related to history, the hope of Israel. 
It is an individual Jesus. So when Jesus is the answer for everything, He really is the answer. When you get up in the morning, where do you place your hope? Is it on a person? Here? Maybe your wife, your husband, your job, your bank account, the economy, the stock market? Well, the Scriptures describe God as hope, the God of hope. Romans 8.22 within the book of Romans says this, for we know, 22 through 25, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await or eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So not only do we hope in Jesus, we have hope that our bodies will be redeemed or resurrected. So it's this amazing thing that I first learned when I was 13, that Jesus says that He will forgive you of your sins if you confess your sins to Him and trust in Him as Lord. But the good news is it's not just about this world like, all right, you're forgiven, but there is a future. There is an eternity. And we will be resurrected. This idea that we will have a new body in a new heavens and new earth. So the world that you see here is temporary. It is temporal, but we live eternally. Either in heaven or hell or the lake of fire. Two options. We don't like to talk about it. But one of the things that that was kind of rough in my week, I don't know what kind of week you had, is as a chaplain, I had to deal with a death in the community. And it it was a very bad death. And And I tried to comfort the family who was dealing with the ramifications of that death. And so every once in a while, as we go through life, you really do have to lift your eyes up from your to do list. As you just get up through the day and you just tear off and and you're trying to do stuff, you have to lift your eyes up and think about more important and serious issues. And this family was confronted with that. Life and death. What happens when you die? More specifically, hope. Why should we live? Is there any hope in death? Well, God is the God of hope. He not only redeems us, but He gives us a future in the resurrection. But there's this challenge. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And and there's the rub. Some people have run out of hope. You may be that person here today. Perhaps you've placed your hope in religion or a, a church service or a pastor. Or maybe even in in some of the blessings that God's given you. Your family, your kids, your house, your career. And and that's your hope. But that's not where our hope should be placed. Because if you place your hope in me, not only will I disappoint you, I'll probably make you mad. If you place your hope in, in husbands or spouses or kids, stuff goes wrong there. Your jobs, you get fired. 
your health, you get sick. There's not a whole lot of hope in this world because Jesus is coming back. It is in Him that we place our hope that He will redeem us for all eternity. And this world is passing away. We place our hope in Him. And here's the cool thing that that this God of hope in, in the next aspect of this sentence, He says He fills us. There's a supernatural filling. What does He fill us with? The third aspect, He fills us with all joy and peace in believing. All joy and peace in believing. This is another thing that really confused me. It's like, is this saying that back when I was 13, that I, when I trusted in Jesus to forgive me of my sins and I trusted Him for salvation, that that one moment in time in believing is supposed to carry me through all of life and I'm supposed to have joy and peace back because of something that happened in like 1984? No, that's not what it's talking about at all. This believing is an ongoing belief. In 1 John it says, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, referring to Jesus, while we walk in darkness, while we walk or live in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, the believing is living, walking. Yes, it starts with a point in time where you make a decision. You have to make that decision. But once you make that decision, you believe you trust God in all of life. And this gets back to being a disciple like I talked about. If you believe in Jesus, that should affect, that should inform or transform your life as a husband. How you manage your money. What hobbies, if any hobbies, do you get involved with in the time that you spend there? It should inform how you raise your children. If you believe all the promises of God, and you're filled with all joy. It changes. You see, in believing, you get the joy and the peace. I don't know about you, but I tried to place my peace in the Dallas Cowboys. Yes, we have a few of you in here, and you're like, really, Scott? I thought you were smarter than that as a pastor. I'm going to go to the church down the street. No, you see... I discovered like the Dallas Cowboys are the most beloved football team in America. And uh, we even have a Cowboys jersey on probably in here today. Uh, he's brave. What can you say? Uh, we love to search for stuff that we, we try to find peace and joy in. We really do. And, and some of this stuff is good. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with kids. We love kids, right? We want more kids here. There's nothing wrong with spouses and great marriages and and having peace and joy in a great marriage. But if that is the actual source, if that is what consumes you, and you ignore all the rest of it, primarily, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. This is the greatest commitment. If you are doing great in one area, Sometimes you think you're great in all areas and therefore you should have joy and peace as you're following God. Let me give you a simple example. You ever heard of a pastor that was going along fine then all of a sudden he does something really stupid and the church like gets rid of him or he has to quit because of some moral failure? 
But what he was doing is he was letting his life be consumed with his ministry. And he was trying to do really good stuff in ministry, but he was letting the rest of his life go south. Like you can be a great mom and dad, really raising your kids up in the Lord, but if you lose the Lord, or maybe you leave the church body, or you leave ministry, or you, or, or you or you start becoming greedy and using the finances that God's given you for other purposes than to glorify God. So you, you, you could be doing great here, but all the rest of this stuff, if you're, if you're not living for Christ there, believing or living this out, all of a sudden, you begin to, to dry up spiritually, so to speak. You lose that joy and peace. And, and you're just following God because of rules and regulations, because you think you ought to. I won't ask for a show of hands here, but I would have to imagine if I asked you to raise your hands, there's probably a time in your life where you would say, Scott, I really don't have any joy and peace. haven't had any in a while. It's not because God's left you. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God. It is because you've quit believing. Not as in you don't believe in salvation anymore, but you've misunderstood believing like it's a once and done thing. It's believing is living out your faith. If you're not living for Jesus, you really don't have all joy and peace. It just doesn't work that way. And he says this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This word abound means to exceed or to overflow. It is the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit in your life as you follow Jesus. You receive joy and peace. And then he says, By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Overflowing in hope. Once again, this word hope occurs 53 times in all the Bible, 13 times in the book of Romans, never in the Gospels. And he says this, this hope isn't easy. In in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 5, as the Holy Spirit makes you abound in hope, it's not just when you go to the grocery store, Listen listen to what he says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice. Here's So he's kind of describing this salvation moment. But in verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as we endure suffering, God's love is poured into our hearts, And this suffering uh, and endurance produces character. And all of this, the Holy Spirit is at work pouring love and hope into our hearts. It is a supernatural act 
that goes along with life. And this life is not this easy life. Have you ever met someone that's truly given up hope of winning the race in Christ? I have. Perhaps the best illustration I can think of, and I'm not going to throw her under the bus, I'm not going to name her by name, but it was in the Olympics. Maybe some of you saw this. It wasn't hope in Christ. It was hope in winning a medal of any kind. Apparently, and this was just wild. We've never seen this in the Olympics before. And if you're, if you're tired of Olympic stories, I'm sorry, this will be my last one. But in this event, they have a ladies' event where they put these ladies on short, stubby skis, and they send them down a half pipe. And if you don't know what a half pipe is, think of a, a monstrous pipe that's cut in half. That's why they call it a half pipe. And it's really long, and it's like 22 feet high. And so this lady, she gets on skis, and she's supposed to go off the lip of the pipe, down one side and up the other side, up into the air, like 17 feet in the air, do like triple, quadruple backflips, all sorts of stuff, land and keep doing it all the way down as they ski down this long pipe. And they give them you know, awards and points for their performance. Well, this lady discovered, apparently, that it's such an unusual sport, right? Uh, that's kind of the, the thing of, with Olympics today. Like, like, who actually does this? Anyway, she discovered that so few people compete in this event that she could travel all around the world in all the qualifying events if she would just show up and place last, that she would actually earn enough points to go to the Olympics because there were only like 15 women in like the event itself, maybe in China or India, and, and if you placed in like the top 20, you got points to go to the Olympics. So all she would have to do is show up. She wouldn't have to do any like performance acrobatics. She would just have to go off the lip, go up, down, up, down, up, down, and, and she would get points. She could place last. And she did this. So in the qualifying events, before all the world in the Olympics, this lady, she gets up, she gets on the lip, and she goes off. And everyone's expecting, they don't know the background, everyone's expecting her to like just fly to the edge of the event or the edge on the other side of the pipe, go up 20 feet in the air, do a backflip. Well, what she does is she goes down, she goes up, turns, doesn't even get out of the pipe and just goes back down. Like she's like a, a new beginner skier sort of deal with her little poles, almost like wedging it. But she just kind of goes up, turns down, and, and they're thinking like maybe she's hurt or injured. And then, then the commentators finally kind of inform us that, like, no, she's just there goofing off. She's having a, a, a good old day herself, but she's just there. She's, she can say she's been in, in the Olympics, and she has no desire whatsoever to get a, a medal. It's like sending your, like, little kid down in the, in the Olympics, and she just kind of moseys on down the little pipe, up and down, up and down, and then at the end, she's like, Yes! And they're just, people are booing this woman. <laughs> and she's like, how in the world did she get in the Olympics? She has no hope of winning, placing a medal at all. It was so ridiculous. And, and they were actually pretty gracious. The, the commentators, I, I, I go back and I listen to this because I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And everyone else is like, what is going on here? We recognize that's ridiculous. Yet, we get up every day, and, and we really don't place our hope in the resurrection or, or, or heaven or Christ coming back, do we? We kind of just put our head down and make it through the day. And as you're grinding it out through the day, 
you don't really have a lot of hope, joy, or peace. You're just trying to get through the day, and at the end of the day, if something really didn't go too terribly bad, you kind of call it a good day, and joy and peace, well, that's in the Bible, but not really for you. That's how most Christians live their life. And the reason is, they're relying on a point-in-time belief, more than likely years ago, to carry them forward. That's not how you get hope. You have hope and joy in believing. You have peace, joy in believing, and the Holy Spirit pours hope into your life and love. And so you can have hope eternal as you live out Jesus in every way, every day. Jesus really is the answer. I pray your hope is set on Him and not just having a good day. You do that, you're going to have joy and peace. Do it not, and you won't have joy and peace. You'll be that lady going up and down like a little kid, and people are actually kind of laughing. You're claiming to follow Jesus, but you're caught up in all the stuff of this world, and they're like, why are they even here? What are they doing? They have no chance. Well, our Savior, you have a chance. You have more than a chance. You have eternal life. And He promises in His truthfulness that He affirmed in Jesus Christ that you can have joy and peace as you believe. And as other people see that, they will rejoice. And they will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that you know Him today. Let's close. Father, I just thank You for Your mercy in my life. Because I don't always place my faith and hope in You. Uh, I place it in other stuff a lot of the day. Lord, but I just thank You for Your goodness that we can come back to You this very moment. Maybe there are people here today that have been uh, in the body or a fellowship of Christ in a long time, or maybe they're not truly giving all of their life to you. And yet, you just have mercy and mercy and more mercy on us. I just pray that you'll help us all to just focus on you and to reflect you in every area of our life that we might place our, our hope in you. And you would just fill us with that joy and peace that we once had, maybe. If there's anyone here that has never made that decision, I pray they make it right now. They just trust in you as Lord and Savior. They repent of their sins. They ask you to forgive them of their sins right now, silently, right where they're at. And they confess you as Lord. You say that you'll save them. You'll give them eternal life and life abundantly right now. I thank you. For anyone here that's made that decision this very moment, I pray you'll give them courage to share that publicly. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.